Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Luke 16. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be a steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I can't dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, that they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, well, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly really weird story and parable. And it seems to be like Jesus is almost rewarding or looking at a noble feature of this character who is clearly ripping off his boss. And so context matters. As we have seen in Luke, Luke is composing a series of teachings that all build on one another. And it's an important thing to recognize where we, Jesus is still moving to Jerusalem. These are the Jerusalem road teachings in Luke. And there's multiple chapters that just, each one gets harder and harder to understand. Each one gets more and more convicting. And the journey is that of a worker. If you want to be working in the kingdom of God, these are concepts we need to build in so that we can become soldiers. And we can be on that. We can take that same flint-faced mission to our cross. And we can head in that direction. So again, like you open up the next chapter of Luke and you're like, wow, what do I do with that? And I think there's a lot of blessing if you open your hearts to this and just receive what I think Jesus is trying to teach. He's accused, Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of a man that eats with sinners, that receives sinners and eats with them. The accusation has a lot of layers. Last week we went through three parables where Jesus is responding to this accusation. And this is kind of a fourth story that is still responding to the same accusation. In verse 1, it says, he also. So he is continuing to add to these the response to this. The first three parables were that of the shepherd going after the sheep, the coin being sought after because it has high worth, and the prodigal son coming back home. And all, of, and all of these are responding to the fault in the accusation. Jesus is not just a man, he's a shepherd. And he's responsible for caring for all people. They're not worthless sinners. They're silver coins worthy of being redeemed and found. Like there's nothing wrong with these souls. They are, they are family, not just things to be disposed of. And so that heart for our lost family members is a good thing. They're sons and daughters. And then with the prodigal son, they're not just eating. He's not just receiving them and eating with them. He's welcoming a lost son back home and he's celebrating the fact that sinners might want to know something about the kingdom of God. What a glorious thing when a a sinner goes to church for the first time or someone attends a Bible study to try to figure this stuff out. Jesus is actually directing his disciples that that's where our focus maybe should be. Like everybody in this room, we're all here because we're geeked out on Bible study. 
It's people that aren't in this room that should take up the other six days of our week. So Jesus is eating and receiving these sinners in order to welcome them back to the family. The fact that he says to his disciples in verse 1, there is still a multitude standing there. Verse 14, it includes the Pharisees, the people that made this accusation against him. It's just that he's turning to his people at this point, people that have chosen to follow him. Those are the people he's focused on. And he's still addressing his accusers, but he's trying to teach his disciples something about how to handle these accusers. God's perspective on all this. So there was a certain rich man who had a steward. A steward is somebody who manages the affairs of the owner. Think of them as a butler or a house manager or a, a, a sharecropper, right? Someone else owns everything, but they hire someone to take care of it all and manage it. You buy a McDonald's, you hire a manager to op do the day-to-day -day operations of it. And you got this steward that's doing a horrible job. He's wasting his goods. The idea here with wasting is more than just bad management. He's actually embezzling. He's stealing from his boss. And this idea of the Greek word there is to dissipate or to thin out. Whatever profits would have gone to the master, they're getting thinned out because the steward's taking things for himself. Right? So the, the context of this is that he calls him and he says to them, what is this I hear about you? And again, the hear about you is a much more emphatic. It, there's been a confirmation of, of, of inappropriate behavior going on. So the master calls him in and says, I need to deal with this. You guys are dissipating my resources. Give an account of your stewardship for you can no longer be a steward. I want you to explain yourself, but the decision's already been made. You're done. You don't get to steward my stuff anymore. Think of this in context of the Pharisees in the crowd who have been stewarding the Jewish faith for thousands of years. And this idea that stewardship can be taken away, your time's up, but you need to give an account and the, the end has come. And Jesus talking to his disciples may be indicating that there is a line of time that they're going to get stewardship over the kingdom of God. But that stewardship will run out and you have to give an account for your life. We all do. You've been given stewardship over certain things and certain people in your life. There are folks that you are obligated to tell about Jesus Christ. Can you imagine getting to heaven and having somebody across the chasm that says, why didn't you tell me about this? And you're like, well, I didn't want you to get angry at me or hurt your feelings. And now they're burning in a lake of fire because you didn't want to hurt their feelings. Like What a, what a tragic situation. And so, again, Jesus is being accused of eating with sinners, and he's pointing out this idea of, like, of, of course I'm receiving sinners. Who else do I talk to? In another gospel, it's like, I'm not here for the healthy. I'm here for the sick. I came to try to warn them and to try to give them some sort of option to choose from. So what do we do with our time, resources, and talents? That's what we're stewards of. Did we increase Jesus Christ's name in our life with our time, our resources, and our personality, and our words? Did we take everything we had and we glorified the name of God with it? And again, a good steward can take care of a, 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 the master's territory and still have time to, you know, have some Cheez-Its at night and watch, you know, psych. But that doesn't mean they're not a good steward. You know, so again, this isn't something where God demands all of your time. He, demand, he demands one day a week. And then you got six days a week to do your work. So that's a pretty good boss, right? You got a job. You only have to work one day a week. And then you got the idea of this steward saying within himself, again, Jesus is telling the story. So he's, he's giving us that inside look of what's going on in their head. I wonder if this is exactly the kind of thinking the Pharisees were doing. 
And Jesus is putting this on the table to show them, I, I know what's going on inside your head too. They're coming out accusing him of eating with sinners, but really they're trying to manage their, their being the boss of the religious system. And they're trying to cling for dear life because they know they're, at some level, they know their time is up. That Jesus is instituting the kingdom of God. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. Again, this is, the image here is, Jesus is taking away the authority from the Pharisees. And he's removing the people from their authority. He says, I cannot dig, I'm ashamed to beg. Two different options. You can go out and beg for things, or you can go get a job. Here's the problem with being a finely entitled Pharisee that has grown up within a family of Levitic Pharisees. You probably have never done a hard day's work in your life. Kids that are born into money, into resources, often don't know how to work. So here's a grown man going, I don't actually know how to do anything. Right? And that's the problem with the Pharisees. It's a career for them. Let's say their ministry dries up and Jesus takes everybody out of their synagogue and they're all hanging out with Jesus on a Sabbath instead of going down to the synagogue. Pharisees get angry because nobody's left in the synagogue. So they come running over to find where all the people are and they're dining with Jesus Christ. What are they going to do? They can't dig. They can't get a job. But they can see visibly that they're losing people from the synagogue. Something's being taken away. And he's addressing that. The steward knows that they've utterly failed, but instead of just admitting it, maybe picking up a shovel and going back to work. Like, I'll say this to you all that, like, this is what I love about ministry being born on top of your already existing job. What are you willing to sacrifice beyond your 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week, if you know, depending on how hard you work? The steward knows he's failed and he's got a plan. It assumes then that he actually was sealing, right? He knows that when he goes in to talk to his master, he's going to lose his job. So he knows darn well that he's been thinning out the resources a lot like the Pharisees have been. Instead of teaching the whole counsel of God, they're teaching the rabbinic stuff. They're doing thematic teaching. They know they haven't been doing, they haven't been giving all the glory to their master because they know darn well that they're taking some of that glory for themselves. Just look at the robes they're wearing and how much those robes cost. Those Pharisees are doing pretty well for themselves in this culture. So he says, I can't dig. I'm ashamed to beg. He's got too much pride to go out and actually work or ask people for help. And again, as Christians, like when it comes to our spiritual lives, we never want to be in that position. Are we, are we willing to do the basic ministry jobs? Are we willing to step in and help where it's needed? Or do we have this level of pride where we have to be in this position or that position? We need that title. We want our picture on the wall next to the other elders. Like, where are we at and where's our heart when we walk into the body of Christ? So the plan here is to further abuse the post of stewardship, making it even worse, and actually ripping off the master in the process. Um, so leeching not just money for themselves, but now leeching money to get goodwill of everybody else. So this is the primary problem of the Pharisees. They care what other people think about them. They do. And this is a hard thing for good, nice Minnesotans to understand. Often in the walk of Christ, part of us defining territory for God in our life means telling other people no. But this steward doesn't do that at all. Really, the hope here is if I can give people a deal on all their debts, maybe when I'm impoverished, they might help me out and I don't have to beg as hard. 
right? Maybe I'll get a little something in this life. So they're trying to store up favor in this life that they think will help them in the next life. This is like building up a lifetime of works, thinking that's going to help you in the, in the afterlife. So that's what they do. Verse five, he called every one of his master's debtors to him, everybody they know. And he said, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to them, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. This is a great bill. Like you only have to pay half of what you owe. Like imagine for those of you that have debt, if your, your debtors just came and said, you only, if you can just pay us half, we'll call it even. Every, like what a great deal. They're all taking this deal. When you're talking about religious leaders in this context, the only thing I can think of is if you're not being taught the whole counsel of God, if you're not getting a good chunk of God's word every week, they're kind of giving you half of the meal. But there's people that kind of like that because half the meal means half the conviction. Let's be honest. When we read through God's word, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's a knife wound to our heart. We're doing surgery when we come to church on Sundays. And sometimes there's things where it's like, man, I got to make changes. But if I tell you, you have to do half as much in the kingdom of God, you're going to, everyone takes that. Oh, that's what a great deal. I can go to church and never get convicted and never have anything put on my plate. No demands of God. Then he says to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He says, take your bill and write 80. Second example, same kind of thing. So the master, and this is the confusing verse. The master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. The master just got ripped off. He just got stolen from. So that, first of all, Jesus isn't saying it's okay to steal and it's okay to graft off your master. That's a misunderstanding of this passage. The rich man is recognizing something about shrewd thinking. And this is the lesson. He's still going to lose his job. Again, there's a consequence for his evil. Like this doesn't say he changed his mind and kept the steward in place. He just says... A nice job. That was pretty shrewd. At least you're getting as much out of this life as you possibly can before the next one. Because the next one's going to be unemployed. You got nothing in the next life because you've blown it in this life. At least you're doing everything you can do to store up treasures in the next life. At least you're being shrewd. And as we're going to go through the chapter, I think this becomes more clear. But the idea of storing up treasures in heaven versus storing up treasures in this life, when you know this life is going to end, there's at least a common sense shrewdness that has nothing to do with religiosity. And in the business world, sometimes you can commend the passion. You ever meet somebody that's just all in for their work and they're working 50, 60, 70 hours a week? At some level, to even just commend like, you know, I can respect that these people work hard. It's really cool stuff. So the only disciples could think more like this than the church could be as active as, say, Apple Computer. If we question the dedication of business people, politicians, press, even athletes trying to get to a high level of athleticism, isn't there something noble about how shrewd they are with their time? How they measure it? They account for it? Heck, athletes even account for every calorie that goes into their body. And what it's going to do. They study medicine so they know the reaction their body will have to that food. Isn't there some, even though they're wasting their time and they're in sin and they got nothing stored up for the next life, at least they're being shrewd about how they spend their time. They're not wasting it. So this steward that was wasting the master's resources before has turned a corner in that at least now they're dedicated. 
and they're doing something with their time. It's the wrong thing. It's They're still going to get fired. But if we store up a treasures in heaven, at, even at the expense of our, at this life, even at the expense of things we want to be doing with our time on a given day, but we're going to get dedicated to the king, at least there's some shrewdness to that. Again, I think the, the parable works this way too. Okay, well then, as a Christian, you're like, well, I'm just going to do works. I'm going to do tons of good things for the kingdom in hopes that that'll get me to heaven. But in this parable, that isn't going to do the steward any good at all. So the, the idea of there's some benefit to storing up good works or works that will profit you, maybe. But at the end of the day, you're, we're all going to have to face judgment. We're all going to be held account to what we're doing. And there is some commendability to that of doing good works, but it's not going to save you. It's not going to get you anywhere. So recognizing we have nothing to offer, we can't dig, we can't beg, maybe being nice will help. Well, at least there's some thinking going on at this point. So he, he points out or he ends with this verse, and I think this is where we get the framing for it. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Sons of light, which should be the Pharisees. But he's looking at this going, look, I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners that are actually dedicated to their jobs. They're actually trying to do nice things. They're actually trying to repent and come back to the kingdom of God, but the sons of light don't even bother with what they need to do to fix and work on their own hearts. Pharisees are so arrogant, they don't do any of that. But at least sinners and tax collectors, Jesus can have a conversation with them about their works and what they're doing. And remember, one of those tax collectors is likely Matthew. Jesus being accused of eating with one of his own disciples. And the Pharisees are like, why are you wasting your time on a disgusting tax collector? And Jesus is like, because at least Matthew knows how to keep books. At least he knows something about taking some abuse for what he does for a living. And as a Christian, guess what? Matthew's going to take some abuse for what he's going to do for a living after Jesus. At least there's some guts with those people. Have you ever met a non-Christian and you just think to yourself, man, this one would make a good Christian? If they could take half of that dedication and will and humor and joy that they have over in these areas that mean nothing, if they could just bring that into the kingdom, man, what a blessing that would be. Yet as, a, as kingdom people, sometimes we don't recognize some of those gifts. Worldly non-believers know how to lay up treasures. They know how to stockpile. Christians should take a lesson from that. We should think in heavenly terms, and Jesus already has talked about this, we should be wanting to stockpile treasures for heaven. And all the crowns we get, it says we're going to lay them at the feet of Jesus. Don't you want a lot of crowns to lay at the feet of Jesus when you get there? Like, I took all the time you gave me and I was a good steward. But short of that, maybe you're a bad steward and you've wasted a lot of time. At least take the time you got left and try to do something good with that time. And again, it's great when a kid gets saved when they're young because they got a whole lifetime to give to Jesus. But what do you do with sinners and tax collectors that have wasted half their life already? At least they're shrewd enough to try to give something back, using our time stridently, hoping for something better on the other side. And again, he still calls this person an unjust steward. That hasn't changed. He has to give account. That hasn't changed. He's going to fall short and lose his job. That hasn't changed. But at least he's using his time to try to hope for a better life. And maybe Christians, we should be looking at that as a virtue we can pull out of this person's life. Verse 9, and I say to you, this goes with this story, make friends of, for yourselves by unrighteous mammon that when you fall in, that when you fail, that, you, that they may receive you into an everlasting home. 
Again, a tough sentence outside of context. What's Jesus talking about here? Jesus likewise doesn't condone sinners. He's actually ta- he's a, he's applying the parable. But he does tell his disciples to make friends among sinners. You don't have to condone the sin in order to actually make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. All right? Here's another take on this. If you look at the words unrighteous mammon, uh, the mammon there is not in the Greek, and it's not in the Hebrew. It's actually in the Arabic. He uses a really unique word here. The word mammon is a word for money, or more broadly than just money or currency, it's the thing, literally translated, the thing in which you put your trust. So when you trust in mammon, you're trusting in anything of this world that you think is going to help you out. Money, resources, food, friends, they're all mammon. They're things of this world. I think it's why Jesus picked the Arabic word. He didn't pick the Greek word or the Latin word or even the Aramaic word. He picked the Arabic word for this. And he's using a word that's very particular to that language. It's any non-God thing that you put your trust in. It's a very broad term, mammon. And it gets translated here, I think, putting it in the language so that we too have to look it up and figure that word out. So what's unrighteous mammon? Anything that's not righteous or God's. God defines righteousness. He's Anything godly is righteous. Anything not godly is unrighteous. So when we make friends by ourselves, because we're willing to talk about our hobbies, unrighteous mammon, things we like, we put our trust in maybe, but they're not righteous. They're not going to go anywhere. They're not going to heaven. Maybe some of that is getting credited to believers because we're at least trying to build friendships with those people and bring them into the kingdom of God. So again, the accusation is that Jesus is receiving sinners and he's having a meal with them. Okay, that's unrighteous mammon. Eating, hanging out, uh, befriending people that don't believe in God, uh, doing these kinds of things. The Pharisees had policies where they wouldn't even eat with people that were living for this world. Like if they defined somebody as unrighteous, they wanted they didn't touch them, they didn't talk to them, complete wall of silence between them. But to use money, earthly resources, in order to build relationships, very simple idea if you read it in context. Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. There, we all have things in this world that we, we have money, we have time, we have resources. We can throw a feast. We can have a murder mystery night. We can go out and go to the range together. We can go to Valley Fair. We can go to the Renaissance Fest. We can do things that we all know will not add up to anything. They're unrighteous things that people like in this world. But the goal is to engage with people in those spaces, not to embrace the sin. He's not saying fall in love with unrighteous mammon. He's not saying make unrighteous mammon your idol. Have it come before Jesus. He's actually saying if you make friends and you use these things to do it, that when you fail, unrighteous mammon will fail. It has no fruit. When it fails, that you might receive you into an everlasting home. There is something we do in this world, which is all unrighteous mammon, that we are stocking up treasures for ourselves in heaven. So the use of these things, very important. When we die, when our time is up, what have we done with that which we've been given stewardship over? Including our money, including our homes, including all these things that will not go anywhere when it comes to heavenly benefit. How have we used those things? And for some, this is a real struggle because in their heart, they are ruled by those things. So then they hear a message like this and they're like, so you're telling me it's okay to have all those things? Not if they're your God. 
No, the purpose of them here is to use them to make friends in order to bring them into the kingdom of God. Right? So when you share those common interests with people, that's actually fruitful. Jonathan just shared a story about how that actually turned into an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation. That's exactly what Jesus was doing at that meal. He wasn't becoming a tax collector. But he was going to, and he, nor did he go to the tax collector's booth and hang out with them in the, in the place of sin. This is people like dance club evangelism. No, you don't go to the dance club. But you're willing to eat with people that do which the Pharisees had written those people off and Jesus goes and engages with them so that they might receive you. The idea here is that they might actually understand what you're saying so that they can hear the message of the gospel and go to heaven. The everlasting home piece, we're playing for eternity, not for this life. It's really that simple. Riches promise so much and they deliver so little because we never have enough money. But what we do have is always available to use for spiritual blessings and gifts. We can take those things and redeem them. Responsible life planning, therefore, is good. Using and planning for generosity is even better. And so this idea of, you know, Christians saying we should never have money, this is a tough verse to have with that, because Jesus is saying quite the opposite. Use that unrighteous mammon that other people put their life in, and use it to make friends with people so you can hopefully bring them into the kingdom of God. So this is why I'm really careful. Yes, athletics and sports in our country is a massive idol worship. We build big arenas that God would call temples, and we wear the idols on our shirts, and we put them up in our home, and all the, they're unrighteous mammon. They're not, nobody that's a Christian that loves sports thinks that those sports are going to get them to heaven. But you can use your knowledge of sports to engage with people so you can have conversations, build friendships, so they might be receptive to coming to church with you. Investing internally in what you have. You know, sometimes when people become believers, there are is there is a sinful past with them, and maybe that sinful past needs to get put away forever. Like I'm never going to engage with that activity because for me it's a slippery slope. But for other people, it's not a slippery slope, and that can be used to engage people and bring them into the kingdom of God. In other words, you actually make make judgment calls around your own life. You have to determine those things. Paul later tells us not to put stumbling blocks in people's way. If there's somebody in your church fellowship and you know that thing is a stumbling block for them, then we don't put that in our life. It's unrighteous mammon that actually trips up somebody that we know and love. So we don't introduce that in the church. So this becomes a logic for a lot of those things where people say, what does the Bible say about this, that, and the other thing that's the most recent unrighteous mammon that's out there? You know, Can a Christian go to a Taylor Swift concert? You know, and, and the answer is, well, you know, you're going to hear a bunch of garbage ideas proclaimed from a stage. None of it gets you to heaven. None of it saves you. What are you going for? And what are you engaging in that activity? What's the purpose of doing it? Do you do it because it's something that you're worshiping yourself because you love this artist? Or is it an opportunity for you to connect with somebody who's clearly a Taylor Swift worshiper? And you can engage with that person and do something that's not going to cause you to stumble, but you can maybe build a friendship where the trade-off is now you got to come to church with me. I went to one of your concerts, you come to one of my concerts. And so using that tool, again, Jesus is talking to his disciples here. I just want to keep bringing up, this is very carefully worded by Luke. He's not talking to the new believers that are still struggling with stumbling all the time. Right? This is often a logic that people can use to say, well, I'm just going to do this because I'm, I'm going to engage with all my heavy metal fans so that we can make heavy metal for Jesus. 
you know, or that's still an idol for you and you need to get some time where you're maturing in your faith before you try to take on these kinds of ministry things. So when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's been talking to people that have been walking with him for three years. That's a long time to be taught by the master. And he's showing them the logic of using things in this world in order to build spiritual relationships with people where you can talk about real things that matter. It's a very difficult passage. Verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. Same word he used with the steward, the unjust steward. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit your trust to true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what's your own? <laughs> Nobody wants to hear this, but it's, it's here. Jesus taught it. This plays in a few different ways. It's about character and lifestyle, not the amount of things that we have. Again, everybody with money, when you ask them, what would it take for you to have the American dream? This is a recent survey that came out. Their answer is about double what they currently make, no matter what they make. The human heart always thinks, if only I had double what I currently have, I would be happy. But that's putting your trust in money. And what is least carnally if we're irresponsible with small amounts of money and resource, then nobody in their right mind would trust us with more. Think about this. If I gave you $1,000 a month and you just wasted on the bingo hall, would I up that to $1,500 a month for some reason? Nobody would do that. You're just wasting it all the time. So he who is faithful in what is least is also faithful in much. There's a character element to it. If you take that $1,000 and you're investing it and you're smartly dividing it, using it for what you need, but also having money for savings and tithing it appropriately, and you're being responsible with that small amount, I have no problem whatsoever giving you more money. Because managing resources, unrighteous mammon, is an, a, a trait of the character of the person, not about how much you have. People say, oh, I'll start, to, I'll start to tithe when I make more money. Nonsense. No, you won't. You'll have some reason why you need that money again. It'll never change. If you don't build the discipline with little amounts, you're also not going to build the discipline with more amounts. Here's another way this plays. When it says in much, we're talking about, I think, spiritually here. If we can't live our life, I'm going to move off of money. If we can't live our life by the law in the simple laws, why would we think that we would live our life under the law when we have more resources and more things. And, and again, there's always a reason to do the things that you want to do versus the things God calls you to do. There's always a reason for it. There's always a justification. It's called the flesh. Why would God bless that behavior in any way, shape, or form? If you're cutting corners with what God has asked for, why would God bless you? If it works this way with money, don't you think it would work this way with spiritual gifts? Again, I feel like I'm just yelling at people right now. This is like the kind of speech you give to your son when he's 13. And, you know, it's, if we're responsible with a little amount, we'll also be responsible with much. It works in that direction, too. It's a disposition. So when our kids were little and we gave them $1 a week for their allowance, they didn't know what a dollar meant. But we made them not one piggy bank. We made them three piggy banks. 10%. We'd give them their dollar, not in a dollar bill, but in 10 dimes. Because we're trying to teach the concept of responsible management with a dollar a week. That pattern, I'm proud to say, unless they're lying to me, they still do that pattern now that they make livings of their own. They haven't changed the pattern. Because they were responsible with a dollar, they can be responsible with a thousand dollars. 
And it, it, it's just, it's a disposition that you have. We actually made them three little piggy banks. One was tithe, one was savings, and one was like whatever you want, like party money, right? And uh, party money is uncommon mammon or un unrighteous mammon. Money is not God. But the way they used it is giving God 10%, giving savings 10%. By the way, they've upped that now. To the, they give 30% to their savings. It's Again, it's a disposition. It's not about how much you make. So when you have people in the church and the temptations to covet that they have lots of money or they have a nicer house or they have this, I'm going to venture to bet that if they've been walking with the king for a long time, the reason they have a lot of that sort of thing is they've been really responsible with their money. It has nothing to do with God's blessing. It has to do with the natural principle of those that are disciplined with their resources will be disciplined with more resources. And it just works that way. The disposition carries over. If you fail, you're going to fail that way. If you fail with the unrighteous mammon, you're also going to fail with your spiritual mammon. You can't discipline how you handle the things that don't matter you're going to probably fail with the things that do matter. Do you see that? If you have not been faithful in your unrighteous mammon, who will commit your trust to the true riches? How does that even happen? You can't, if you can't even manage this and not serve it, like have this be your boss, and you're just constantly working that way, when it comes to the spiritual stuff, you're going to have the exact same disposition over here. This is, again, a tough conversation to have. Those that are all in for tax collecting, if they're repentant, they're going to be all in for Jesus too because they're all in kind of people. And that's why Jesus is hanging out with sinners. At least they know how to live full on. And if your kid's like, I want to, I want to dabble in sin, it's like, no, 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 go full on with that sin. I hope it doesn't kill you, but go full on and see if it gives you any fruit. Don't be lukewarm. Be full on in whatever you do. The Pharisees have failed in being stewards because they're not even good stewards with the money that they're given. They waste it on themselves. They're greedy with it. In other gospels, they don't even take care of their parents in their old age because they have excuses as to why they can't do that. All in sinners, like the people eating with Jesus, Matthew, he's got this fisherman Peter eating with them. Those people are going to be trusted with the kingdom of God, not the Pharisees. And this... I, the idea of faithfulness is a key concept here. Faithfulness is not something that you have like nausea. It's not a, something that washes over you. Oh, I just, it's something that you are. So when people say, oh, I just have faith, I just, I feel faithful. No, you don't. Faith is something you live by. If you have a covenant and you keep the covenant, throughout the Bible, you're called faithful in doing that. It is a pattern of actions over time in the keeping of promises. God is faithful to us, undeniably, because he's kept all his promises. We're generally not faithful back to God. But a faithful person in the Bible is someone who is responsibly taking care of their life, their time, their unrighteous mammon, and they're reliable in the kingdom of God. They're faithful. And so people you know, show up and it's, hey, what can I do? Well, how do I do this? What is that? You know what? Hey, for six months, just be faithful. Like, we have to be able to rely on people, even in a church this size, as small as we are, any kind of ministry that's going to happen has to happen with people that are reliably there. If you're not actually there and there's always something coming up and there's always these distractions, well, you know, we love you. You're welcome. You're a brother or sister, but you still have to figure out this concept that Jesus is teaching right now. You've got to figure out your life. You have to bring order to your life in order to see order in your spiritual life. 
And again, this isn't a question of salvation. Like the steward's going to lose their job no matter what. Judgment is going to happen. But this is an issue of at least they're like looking at some of these attributes of living the day-to-day life. Verse 12 says, and if you have not been faithful in what is another man's. The, the biblical perspective on everything we have, all the unrighteous mammon in our life, everything we could possibly put our trust in, the biblical perspective is it all belongs to God. It's all another man's stuff. Everything we own from the least of these to the greatest of these. It's all God's stuff. And if we're not managing it well, even when we're not rich, but we, but, we, but we manage those things we have, if we can't carry on for Jesus, stewards of his church, faithful, reliable, doing what we need to do, why would we think God would bless us with more? See, this is a really convicting message, isn't it? It hits hard. I had to deal with this all week. You only have to deal with it this morning. Who will give? General question. When we see an appeal like this, who will give in verse 12? Who will give you anything that you have responsibility for if you can't even handle what you're managing for God? God's given you all these blessings. If you can't manage that well, why would God give you spiritual responsibilities? And the the, the who will give is like a general question to everybody that's listening, including the disciples. It's directed to the disciples, but he's like, I want you guys to take on the kingdom of God, but to do that, you have to manage some of these other things. You have to develop some character and dispositional traits in order to be trusted with more responsibility. Far too many people are willing to trust their spiritual care to, to to those things that can't even take care of themselves. Right? We have fallen pastors all over the place. We have people living in sin yet serving in the kingdom. We have churches that hire people that aren't even Christians to be on the worship team because they really want a good guitar player. Think of that in terms of what Jesus teaches. Jesus questioned the Pharisees and he's explaining himself at the same time by talking about stewardship. You guys aren't responsible in things. You don't belong in leadership. These people are res- these people have been walking with me for three years. They deserve leadership in the ministry. And so this non-partiality, Jesus doesn't care what they're wearing, what position they have, what title they have. He cares about, on both sides, who's willing to faithfully carry on the church and the kingdom of God. So he puts his trust in Peter, Matthew, James, John, sons of thunder, these knuckleheads that can't control their, their sentiments. You look at the disciples, they're a motley crew. And he puts his trust in this motley crew to change the world through the kingdom of God. And he puts zero trust in any Pharisee. Not one of them makes the 12. Not one of them makes the 12. And so this idea of of why he's making the decisions he's making and how he's doing it, again, this is not a conversation about salvation, but it is a conversation about can you be a blessing in the church? Can you take on more responsibility for the kingdom? That's why he's talking to his disciples. Then you get to 13. This is a very popular verse. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. People will take this and, you know, well, therefore we should take a vow of poverty. They did this in the Middle Ages. You had whole monks that were like, we will only own a burlap sack to wear around, and and we will have nothing and own nothing, and we will be happy. Um, but again, the whole context here is is not that there's a problem with unrighteous mammon. It, the problem is the disposition on how you use it. Who do you serve is verse 13. A servant, going with the parable, can't serve their master and themselves at the same time. 
because one of them's going to get ripped off. He's going to dissipate the service to one. Don't be split-minded. Jesus is talking about the disposition here, and I like this. You can't be constantly working to build your kingdom on earth and be thinking of the kingdom of heaven at the same time. Because if you want to build the kingdom of heaven, you might need to give up some of your unrighteous manna to make that happen. And if you want to build your own kingdom here on earth, you're going to be really resenting every time you give anything to the kingdom of God. Time, resources, money, you name it. Anything that people put their trust in. Big, broad category when we see the word mammon. So that idea of hating one, loving the other, it's not. this is not just a conversation about money. It's, I'd say more importantly in America, because we're opulently wealthy in America. Our standard of living is way above. We have animals that live better than some of the British students, Right? Think about that. It's not an issue of money for us. We get more territorial over, over time. Time's the limited resource in our culture. Time's the thing we don't want to give up. Time's the thing we never want to say to anyone we love, I can't do that because I've got a commitment over here. It's often the commitment in the kingdom of God that gets the shaft. Well, I got these people I got to make happy so the kingdom of God gets shafted. Boy, the problem is the best way to make those people happy is to be a reliable steward and servant. The best thing a husband can do for their wife is say, I'm putting Jesus first. I'll see you after church if you don't want to go. Because if I'm not giving my life to the Lord, I'm nothing as a spouse. I'm nothing as a parent. I'm nothing as a son or a daughter. And I have to give to God what's God and serve him first because I care more about your eternal salvation than I care about spending time with you. So I have to live in a certain way that is actually something to be emulated. The context in the first century is that owners and you had owners and workers. You really didn't have a middle class. You had people that owned things and people that worked for them. And you'd bind yourself to a house. That's where the word master comes from in verse 13. And when you bounded yourself to a house, they didn't have unions. There weren't 40-hour work weeks. And they didn't believe in Saturday as a day off for me time. The only thing they regarded and the only reason they did is because God gave them Sabbath. But otherwise, they worked six days a week, full-time, 14-hour days. When you had a master, you served your master all in. Everything you had was theirs. And you'd, if you loved them, you'd put your ear to the doorpost, and they'd put a stake through it, and they'd nail you to the doorpost. And then you're part of the family. Or you could just work for them for a payment or, or for food and shelter. Uh, you could bind yourself that way, too. But you'd sacrifice your life to the master. You have my life, and I'm going to put my trust in you to provide me food and shelter. That was the relationship. And Jesus is using that relationship. I think this is part of why he came during this period of history is because this relationship best explains our commitment and our covenant with God. We put our ear to the doorpost, and, and there's a stake driven through it, and that blood covers the doorpost just like Jesus on the cross. And we enter into that family simply saying, we'll give you our whole life. It's all yours. We now work for you. And Jesus said, okay, good. Let me see if you can be faithful in the unrighteous mammon first. Let's see if you can just take care of your time, your money, your resources, handle your families, take care of those things on earth that you need to be righteous with and see if you can do that for a season before God's going to put you to work. People get saved and they're like, I want to serve God today. I want to do everything for Jesus right now. And Jesus is like, let's just see if you can be faithful in a few things first. It's not about emotions. That idea of serving God versus serving yourself, serving other people's opinions, or serving what the culture expects of you. They all compete with what God asks. So the unrighteous mammon, where here he just says mammon in general, maybe it's righteous stuff too. Everyone 
has to have something that they put their trust in in this world. We do actually need money and we do actually need clothing and we do actually need shelter. Um, I would argue we need barbecue, but that's maybe a step too far. You have to have mammon. Everybody does. Everybody has to, in order to sustain yourself for the next day, you have to put your trust in food at some level. But is it what you serve? Do you live for it? Do you make sacrifices for those things? You serve what you give your time to. Where you put your resources. Does regular cheese do it, or do you need the more expensive Gouda cheese? And are you willing to make sacrifices to get the Gouda cheese? Do cheese and crackers do it, or do you need a charcuterie board? And you're willing to make sacrifices for such things. Bonnie's back there nodding her head, well, yeah, I do. But to serve, too, is to make sacrifices for one or the other. That's the point. You can't serve God and the things of this world at the same time. Yet you need both in your life. Pharisees think they can serve both. They can serve God and line their pockets at the same time. They can get rich. They can serve God and never have to do ministry with sinners. Right? They're just off the hook. That's not their gifting, apparently. So they never, they're no obligation whatsoever to reach out to the lost souls and bring them back to the flock. They're so wealthy, that silver coin can fall and they don't even go looking for it. Their prodigal son can go away and they're the, the son that stayed home and they're just upset that a sinner might want to come back because they're going to take resources. And so you have these, finners, these Pharisees with this attitude that's just killing the, the, the temple practice that Jesus instituted through the law. And they're making a mockery of it. Then you get to verse 14. Now the Pharisees, so they are there and they are listening and they've heard all this. Now the Pharisees, and notice the new descriptor that Luke puts in there, who were lovers of money. This was their problem. And the word there is not mammon. He switches it to cash. Cash was their God. And and this is just, I also think Luke puts this in there because everybody knew it. Everybody knew Pharisees were just going to hit you up for money at some point or another. They also heard all of these things and they derided him. Derided there in the Greek is to sneer, literally to turn up one's nose. Oh, listen to this guy. He's nuts. And so they didn't like him before, but now they're just publicly denouncing him, deriding him, verse 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in sight of God. You're out there letting people pay off their debt with half-price deals. You're that guy. You're doing it because you want to win the favor of these people. And you're just like this steward that was running around giving half-price deals. You're telling people they really don't need to give anything to God. There's no sacrifice required. Just come hear the music, hang out. There'll be a parking lot attendant that'll help you get out of here quickly at the end of the service. It's all lined up, easy, convenient. You know, hey, we could do drive-through churches. We could even do churches from home on video cameras. You don't even need to get dressed. You can just watch church in your PJs and call that your relationship. How many of you know people that are saying, I just do church online now? Nobody's raising their hand for that? Have I lost you? Honestly, how many people in here know people that have said that with their mouth? Okay, just Jonathan. I'll keep moving. People often reject Jesus' teaching because it's demanding and it's in conflict with the things that they love. 
and the Pharisees are no different. He says, you are those. He officially rejects their authority, names the sin, and, and takes away their standing and stewardship. So again, Jesus is accused at the beginning of the last chapter, and he's officially using that accusation to say, you guys are done. Enough. And in the church, often, sometimes we have to tell people, like, you're not going to be in leadership because you've crossed the line. Those who justify yourselves, you're arguing for yourself instead of using the word of God. Sadly, this is becoming the norm. People think of their Christianity and how they're going to serve out their Christianity, and it's what they've determined is enough for themselves instead of God's calling. This is dangerous, you guys, and it's all over in our country right now. People making their own determinations. Here Jesus says that you're doing this before men. You're justifying yourselves before men. If you can argue it to other people and they agree with you, then it's okay. What happens when you argue it to people that are like, no, I'm going to stick with the word of God? The response to that then we see is deriding. Like these people that think they're holy when somebody isn't impressed with their holiness, they get angry at the person that's not impressed. It's absolutely a demonic worldview and a demonic thinking. Self-justification has zero weight before God when we give account to God. He won't listen to our justifications and why we did what we did and how we twisted the word of God. But you might be highly esteemed among men. Lots of people might say you're an outstanding human being. You're a great person. Look at how well you dress. And the, this list of things, based on culture, stands with nothing when we're set against God's standard. And God's standard actually looks at our hearts, verse 15. God knows your heart. Nothing on the outside matters. The only thing that matters is your heart. Like, you can fit any Christian group and act like the rest of the people in the room. But at the end of the day, God knows what's going on inside your heart. And the goal here isn't to put on a show or to act for people. The goal is to actually get the heart right against his standards, not anybody else. So our display to other people, like I get you guys are Christians. I get how you operate. I'm going to be just like you Christians. I'm going to talk like you Christians. I'm going to act like you Christians. Because if I do that long enough, maybe I'll feel justified. But that's just weak Kung Fu. You get before God, it just doesn't work. It doesn't, that's a way of thinking and existing that won't last. It will perish. And then Jesus concludes, verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone's pressing into it. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her and is divorced from her commits adultery. That's a weird to have a marriage verse just thrown in with this lesson, isn't it? Where the Pharisees are an abomination before God, don't miss that he just threw this, this logic in there in verse 15, the law still stands. It's not the law that's the problem. Remember the Pharisees were all about getting people to keep the law. And they added tons of rules around it. It's not the law that's the problem, it's you. You're the abomination. And Jesus clarifies verse 15 with this, this explanation. He says, until John. In the Greek, the word were, in my Bible it says, um, the law and the prophets were until John. In the Greek, the word were just isn't there. It's implied up until John. The prophets to the point of John, and Jesus in part, were, had a purpose. So, the law and the prophets until John, since that time the kingdom of God's been preached. The law and the prophets pointed to John and Jesus, 
But the, the actual kingdom of God that God wanted to bring about is now getting preached. You've actually heard it. So everything you're trying to defend, Pharisees, with your law, that was all to do what we're, what we're doing over here. So the law sets up John and Jesus. It doesn't set up the Pharisees. It sets up the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God then is defined as broader, as an inheritor. Um, it should be welcoming. It should be something that includes non-Jewish folks. And it is something that the lost prodigal son can come home to. This is the kingdom of God. Also, the kingdom of God is being referred to in verse 16 as currently existing. It's not heaven. It's how we live here on earth amongst one another. It's the culture we make as believers. And it's getting preached. And I love the idea that everyone's pressing into it. That can be read in a bunch of different ways. They could be positively pressing into it. Like, you got sinners and tax collectors, and they're like, oh, they're leaning into this new kingdom. And they're embracing it. But you could also read that as a negative. The Pharisees are like pushing against what's growing, and they're trying to stop it from growing. You ever get a water balloon on a hose and you start filling it up, but then you hold the water balloon? And if you're weird, sometimes you try to push the water balloon to keep the water up in the hose and see if you can get enough force. But all that happens is the water balloon just keeps popping out between your fingers. And that's the kingdom of God. There's so much pressure in growing the kingdom of God. And then you got Pharisees trying to push against that, but they can't. They can't stop it. And it's frustrating because it keeps popping out between their fingers. This idea of everyone pressing into it implies that people know, like Jesus' message has been heard by everyone. So you've got Pharisees and demons in the book of Luke that have pressed against it negatively. You've got zealots with their own violent approach that they don't like what Jesus is presenting, a peaceful kingdom of God. You got Jesus and his followers with changing hearts that are actually pressing, but in a different direction. They're pressing for it to grow. And Jesus clarifies, this doesn't wipe out the law. There's an interesting fallacy that I've heard come up in the American church today, that the Old Testament's not relevant. We can just read the New Testament and just read the red letters, and that's all we need to do. Everything else isn't important. But Jesus goes out of his way to be like, no, the law is important. Paul even says, like, the law shows us what our sin is. How do you even start with a relationship with God if you don't know what you're repenting from? You don't feel guilty about what you've done, so there's nothing to repent from. The tittle is the little mark used in the Hebrew, like our period. It's a single dot. And his point is like, the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the law and the prophets, not one tittle of it changes with Jesus. He's actually fulfilling it. He's not erasing it. And so this is an interesting thing because then people say, well, didn't Jesus replace the covenant that was with Moses and David and those Noahic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants? Isn't he replacing it with a Jesusic covenant? And the answer is yes, the covenant is maturing or transforming into the Jesus covenant, but it's not necessarily the case that the law goes away. The law stays throughout all eternity, yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus gives an example of this, and I think that's what explains verse 18. He just gives one example of how simple the law is. Remember, the Jews had built massive tomes of rules around divorce, and this is one of the things he went after the Pharisees over. They were making divorce really, really easy. And Jesus is like, you don't need to make it easy. Just admit that it, something went wrong there, right? And he, and he makes a very clear statement about marriage. If you divorce um, your wife and then marry another, you commit adultery. It's that simple. And if you marry 
And if somebody marries somebody who's divorced, they're committing adultery. Does this mean you're going to burn in hell if you get a divorce? Absolutely not. That's not the point of the passage. And, and I think this is one of those things where the whole counsel of God really helps. This is simply a slice of a much larger teaching on marriage law, but it does reflect the Old Testament. Clear, simple rules about what's right and what's wrong. And Matthew 5.32, Jesus adds the exception of fornication as grounds for acceptable divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul adds the exception of an unbeliever abandoning a believing spouse. And he says, you're, and he literally says, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage, covenant, in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Paul gets the point right around this. The point of sin isn't that we become Pharisees around sin. And that we suddenly say, if you've had a divorce, you have nothing of value to add to the kingdom of God anymore. Nonsense. The point of the law is for you to know where you've failed so that you can go to God and say, I've failed. I screwed up. Just admit it. You ever have a kid that just won't admit that they've done something wrong? And you're just like, all we want you to say right now is okay. That's all we want to hear. Won't happen again. That's all we want to hear. And Paul, I love that idea of God has called us to peace. If we know the infraction, then we can go to God and we can make peace with God. That's the point. And under Jesus, we can actually do that. Under Pharisees, you couldn't do that. You didn't just commit a sin. You were a sinner forevermore. And they would ostracize you from the practice of religion for, from there forward. So imagine the people in this room. They're not like a bunch of swarthy pirates. These are people living their life, but they're outside of the pharisaical rule system. Abandoned by the people that should be stewarding them. The point here is not a final discussion on divorce. I hope those other verses help point that out. The point here is for the audience that the law itself is actually really simple and very easy to understand. And, but it doesn't sanctify us either. Nor do we get points by telling others what to eat or who to eat with or who to marry or who not to marry. God looks at our hearts and he looks at their hearts and he deals with it. Then he tells this story. <laughs> wow. There was a certain rich man, a nameless rich man. And who's the rich people in the audience right now? It's the Pharisees. Who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. I love the word sumptuously. They ate more than their fair share. They had everything they wanted. The word sumptuously there implies exotic eating. They had food from all over the world that they could afford and pay for. And like they were foodies. And they worshipped it. They took great pride in it. I'm guessing some of the Pharisees were actually wearing purple in the audience because that was the color Pharisees would often wear if they were the ruler of the synagogue. So he's probably pointing out a very particular person that's actually wearing purple in the audience. And then the second person, he actually names this person. He, this is the only place in the Bible where Jesus names somebody in one of his parables. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores, the good dogs. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and he was buried. It's just so blunt. This is what, look at this. Here's a super rich person that got nothing on the other end. Here's a super poor person that got everything on the other end. That's the, the contrast there is the point. Lazarus in the Latin means my God is my help. A beautiful name. 
the, the certain rich man, it, it, again, Lazarus is likely a character they all knew or recognized that maybe recently died. Maybe this guy recently died on the doorstep of the guy that's in the audience. And he stays nameless, but they name the, the, the beggar that was at this guy's doorstep all the time. They're 30 feet apart, but their lifestyles are totally different. They're rich and poor in contrast. One of them wears purple fine linen, the other one wears sores. One of them eats sumptuously, the other one gets eaten. And is fed with crumbs. Most extreme examples possibly. So, not just rich, but they eat every day like this. Not just poor, but dogs licking sores. Which, by the way, is unclean under the law. Under Levitical law, if you got sores, you shouldn't be anywhere near uh, the, the clean people. You should be purifying or basically stay home and get healthy. Jesus doesn't dwell on the idea that this man was simply ignored by the other man, but he does talk about what happens in the afterlife. It's Jesus speaks as a past tense fact, like he knew that this happened. That, that's, it's a curious thing about this parable. Jesus is speaking like he knows what happens in the afterlife, like he's been there, like he's seen this situation. The beggar died and was carried by the angels. Abraham's bosom. Uh, we have different people that have had after-death experiences, and I don't get into those too much. I really don't. But they'll be different. In Jesus' story, what happens immediately after death is actually different. One gets buried, one gets carried by angels. Different experience immediately after death. The phrase Abraham's bosom here, um, he's actually referring to Abraham as a person, and we all know who Abraham is, Right? So the idea that in death, we actually are with our godly ancestors, assuming we don't all have name tags on, we actually recognize each other in death. Like Abraham's a recognizable person, and somehow we know who he is in this afterlife. And he gets cared for. To be in someone's bosom uh, is to literally and figuratively lay your head in someone's lap. I loved this. At night when they turned the TV on, I would crawl on the couch next to my mom and I'd put my head in her lap and she would just give me head tinglies. I think this is why I went bald early is I really enjoyed head tinglies. But it's literally to snuggle with someone. Intimate, cozy, and loving. That's how the rich man gets received into heaven. God judges him and he carries him to a place of snuggling and comfort. And for those people that have gone through life and they haven't had that, what a, isn't that heaven? Just to be received and loved, cared for, to be abandoned your whole life, to die with dogs licking your wounds, but immediately in a flicker of an eye, your head is in somebody's lap and you're being cared for. Rich purple clothing doesn't apparently go with you to heaven, but neither do the sores, neither do the wounds. One doesn't save or damn the individual. God looks at the heart. This alone is enough to make the point that God doesn't look at the outside. One is raised, one is buried. You can see both, both extremes. One has nothing to do with salvation or damnation. How much money you have will not save you, but it will not damn you. How many sores, wounds, bad experiences. Some people go through life and they feel like they're just cursed. Everything goes wrong. Luckily, that doesn't mean they're on their way to hell, nor does it mean they're on their way to heaven. And being in torment in Hades, another phrase we got to unpack, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, apparently this is a Jewish person. 
because Abraham is called Father Abraham, and he calls this person a son. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you're tormented. See the justice there, buddy? And besides all this, between you and us, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you can't. And those who want to pass there passed, and nor can those from there pass to us. Hey, even if I wanted to help you, which he doesn't, I can't get to you. There's a gap. There's a gulf between heaven and hell. What's interesting is you can see from one place to the other. Isn't that an interesting image? Hades in the Greek is the word Sheol. In the Hebrew, it's the same thing. It's the place of the dead. In in Hebrew and Greek, when we use Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead is not necessarily hell. And that's important to understand. If you know your Greek mythology, both good and bad people go to Hades. It's just a place of the dead. And Greeks had, it's like if we, I think a better translation in the English would be the grave. We all go to the grave. But going to the grave doesn't mean you're necessarily in heaven or hell. In the Greek, Sheol is the place of the dead, the grave. But the Greeks have a word, Gehenna, which is for actual torture in hell. Uh, chapter 12, 5, in this book, Jesus uses the word Gehenna. But here he's using the word Sheol. It's a different place. Um, in the English, better word there is hell. So we have the grave where everybody goes. We have hell where bad people go. Does that, are you with me? But in this place, in Sheol, one person's getting tormented. Um, the word torment there in the Greek, uh, I thought this was really cool. It's actually the word basinos. It's a kind of stone. Uh, it's called a touchstone in the first century. What you would use is if you had gold or silver and you wanted to see if it was, if you were a jeweler, somebody came in with a ring and they wanted to sell it to you, uh, you would heat it up and you'd rub the metal with a bassinos stone. And you'd see what color the scraping was when it was rubbed off. So if you get a rug burn, you know, your skin just gets rubbed off. That's bassinos. It's a, it's a rubbing of the touchstone. And so for a human to be in bassinos um, means that they're either getting heated up like metal to see what it's made of, if it's pure or not, um, but it's also being rubbed in the same way that we would think of a rug burn. And to me, rug burns, are, are they, they hurt. Like if you've wrestled on the carpet before, you know what I'm talking about. Um, the same word bassinos later on gets used for a torture rack. It's to stretch or pull somebody to the point of extreme pain to test the metal, so to speak. Rubbing off a piece of you to see what color is produced. That's what torment looks like. And being in torments, in this process of rubbing off as gold or silver, he's not testing well. It's burning. Because they keep heating it up, they keep rubbing pieces off, and they're not finding anything of gold or silver. Nothing is made well. In this place. Revelation 20 has everyone coming to judgment from the grave. Everyone, before Jesus, after Jesus, righteous, unrighteous, everyone comes to account, which has been in his teachings in this chapter. So when we're coming before God to be held account to, either we're just pulled out of that rubbing process and we get to be comforted by Abraham. No, 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 you're one of the righteous people. You don't have to go through that. Not because we're righteous or better but because God sees that what we deserve is comfort. Being a person who lives largely in comfort, this is terrifying for me. I don't know about you. 
I haven't lived begging for scraps at somebody's door. So what's the right thing for me? So they see Abraham, there's this visual thing, and the request is, have mercy on me. First of all, the rich man's asking the wrong person. Abraham's not the one that gives mercy, as we see in this parable. And and Abraham might have given him mercy, right? He's clearly giving mercy to the Lazarus. So he can see mercy happening, he just can't get to it. Isn't that hell? Isn't that torture to know that some people are being comforted and giving peace and joy and life and light and you can't seem to access that? He explains justice of the placement. That's Abraham's response is, hey, look, the placement here is not unjust. You know, you were an unjust steward and now you're, you're not testing well. So he expects, this is the other thing, he's in hell but he hasn't changed. Pick up on this. Send Lazarus that he might dip the... He still thinks Lazarus is his slave. That Lazarus works for him somehow or another. He deserves more than what he has. So he's he was unfaithful in a lot of stuff, and now he's unfaithful in a little stuff. And he still thinks somebody else is there to serve his needs. And in this flame, torments here include burning. Same thing with Bosanos. And now he's comforted. Note that this is before Jesus has taken the throne, this pre-cross. Um, so they're just kind of there waiting, I think, maybe for the judgment at the end of days. First Peter 3, for Christ also has suffered for sins, the lust of the, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which he also went and preached to the saints in prison. That's an odd passage. This is where Catholics start to get the idea of purgatory. Maybe there's some kind of waiting place, Sheol or grave. The downside is Jesus is telling a story here, right? This isn't necessarily, in the same way that it wasn't a discourse on marriage and divorce, this isn't a discourse on the nature of hell. This is a discourse on where is the heart and what can you take with you into the afterlife? And how does that look? He's telling folks that like Lazarus, it's not going to be long. You, you will get comfort. This world won't go forever. And he's telling people like the Pharisees, you better watch out. And that's where the rest of this parable fits in. And besides all this, the point of the narrative isn't the nature of hell and torment. It's the distance between them. Abraham's like, even if I wanted to give you mercy, I can't. There's a gulf fixed. Once placed, there's no movement between them, which implies that while we live here on earth, there is movement between them. We can warn people on this planet. We can show mercy to people on this planet. It's not what do you have to do for Jesus, it's what do I get to do for Jesus. I can actually use what time I have left like a shrewd steward, and I can pile up resources for the kingdom of heaven. There's a gap that gets fixed and it's unchangeable, and those who want to do things, it's irrelevant what they want anymore. The judgment's been made, it's been passed. In life, they were really close, dining hall to gate. In, in the end life, they're nowhere near each other, and there's a giant gap that's permanent that sits between them. In this life, we actually have an opportunity to reach out to the lost. And again, this is all a response to Jesus eating with people. In this life, we can go out for coffee with sinners. In this life, we can warn them. In this life, we can put a little drop of cool water on a tongue that's being tortured. You ever met people that are going through life and they're just tortured? 
in this life we can give hope and encouragement and love and life. And we should be as urgent about that as shrewd business people are about promoting their companies. How do we get the word of God out and how do we do that? Because we still can. And that's the point. Verse 27, then he said, I beg you therefore, Father. In life, Lazarus was the beggar. Now, this guy, this rich man's become the beggar. I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Please warn my brothers. Like, this is the first time the rich man thinks of anybody but himself. Death doesn't diminish identity. I just want to point that out. There are relationships. Dead people remember the people that they left behind on earth. And if you're being comforted by Abraham, Lazarus isn't like, Lazarus isn't sitting there going, man, I wish I was back on earth. Like, when you're in heaven, you're not looking backwards. This is why sometimes we have good funerals. We know that person was a believer. They're getting comforted. They're in heaven. They're not. They're waiting for us very happily. But there's, for people in hell, there's like, man, I just, I wish we could do this. He has five brothers. It's the first indication that he has family, that he knows anybody. But he does know this about his brothers. He knows that they're not saved. They're well on their way to getting into torment too because they're just like him. And in life, he didn't care to give up any of his comforts. But now he's like, man, at least help them out. And he sees clearly now. He sees that giving up a drop of water on earth might have actually given him some relief here. And his brothers are being as careless and they're headed to the same place. Then Abraham says, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What are you talking about? I don't need to send dead people back to life because they got Moses and the prophet. They have the word of God. It tells the story. It's documented. They have everything they need. The law, the warnings, all of it, the histories. You've got example sinners and example saved. We have everything we need in the Old Testament, yet you guys ignore it for money, power, and reputation. You're Pharisees. You ignore what you're supposed to be teaching. So why aren't they hearing it? <clears throat> they should have given care to people like Lazarus and others in need because mercy is what God desires. Micah. They should have been fair with how they dealt with what they were given because justice is actually commanded, like all of Numbers and Deuteronomy. They should have been giving their worship of their prayer and their heart, their whole heart, mind, and soul. And they should have been doing it with a grateful and a glad heart. Leviticus. Jesus makes this immediate. Um, Abraham said to him is not in the past tense. It's actually in the present active. Good translation is, Abraham says to him. It just wouldn't sound right, so they translate it in the past tense. This is in the present tense. This is what Abraham says right now, presently. And it's, and it's uh, infinitive, too. This is what he has said. This is what he does say. This is what he will say to you when you get there. They have Moses. Let him hear. They have the Word of God, and there's people teaching it. Let them listen. And if they're not even willing to bother with that, if that's not worth their time, they don't have an excuse because the Bible's there. The Bible is the proof. It's the proof that millions of people have needed to become devout Jews and devout Christians. 40 authors, 66 books in total, written over centuries, in complete agreement with itself. That alone, that sentence alone, like puts the Bible on another level. And yet you've got arrogant, pompous people going, oh, the Bible's got, it's just a construct of man. You mean 40 people. Let's even get that sentence right. 
40 people with complete agreement. Bonnie and I can write a book. We agree on everything, but those two books would disagree on 50 points. How do you get a book that's perfectly aligned between 40 different authors? I don't understand that. An incredible number of manuscripts, the entire lines of Levites were committed to reproduction with those tittles. 6,000 surviving manuscripts of the Old Testament. 6,000, you guys. And people debate. That's 10 times more manuscripts than the Iliad. Does the Iliad get questioned like the Bible does? The Iliad makes claims about gods and theology. So does the Bible. Never questioned. Entirely conceptually adequate. No variations in basic theology ideas or the implications of words. None. You can find a spot where maybe a number got the wrong number here or there. Bible scholars can easily explain some of those things. Well, actually, these two can both be true at the same time. All archaeology confirms... Okay, I, I want to say this right. The Bible confirms archaeology, not the other way around. But all archaeology, the entire history of an entire field of study, has only been in agreement with the Bible. That's thousands of finds and digs around the world that consistently align with what the Bible says. No one's ever disproven through archaeology a single point, event, people, or narrative in the Bible. Not once. It's completely accurate by everything we can dig out of the dirt. Most books of the Bible were written within a lifetime of the events, the writers, and the histories of the assembled things. The exception might be Ezra putting chronicles together years after the fact, but he used sources that were being written during the lifetimes. That's important because there's not one contemporary challenge of any book of the Bible, including the New Testament. Not one. Not one serious challenge to what was written, even though it was written within a lifetime. If I wrote a book about a political character, I'd have half the people in this country disagreeing with everything I wrote about that character, no matter what perspective I take. Yet these are books that have zero recorded controversies around them. Now, you could argue, well, that's because they all got destroyed in history, but there's no record of that destruction. They're written, and everybody that was there as a witness agreed with what was written because that's what actually happened. And that's the simplest explanation of why you have no challenges. God's miracles were public. They were known by everyone when he did them. And Jesus' miracles were public. They were known by everyone because he did them in public. This is different than every other major, major world religion. Everything's documented. Same with the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul's argument of why he's telling the truth is, hey, there were over 500 people there. I'm not saying anything that wasn't witnessed by everybody. And that kind of argumentation is throughout the word of God. Let them hear is the response of Abraham. If God has left a track record of all the promises he's kept and the way he's, he's divinely intervened publicly and throughout history, why don't we listen to that? God has left a law that clearly outlines his expectations that's confirmed by public miracles. God's instituted a covenant by which we can be saved and not be in the torments of hell. Why don't we listen to it? It's because we're unfaithful people. We're Pharisees. We'd rather listen to our own judgment over anything else. We'll wrap up the chapter, the last two verses. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Oh, a book's not going to do it. If only somebody could rise from the dead, that would confirm it. Right? Sound familiar? Jesus is laughing on the inside because he knows exactly what the plan is. Like, he's got this covered too. 
and in in the fact that even a sinner like if only a ghost would return and come back um you know he, he clearly the rich man didn't read the bible genesis 22:78 genesis genesis at the beginning of the book isaac spoke to abraham his father and said my father and he said here i am son and then he said look the fire in the wood but where is the lamb for a burnt offering to cover our sins and abraham said my son god will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering so the two of them went together amen that's the plan so they're being man if only god himself could come and be the sacrifice for our sins then we would all accept that gift and we'd all be saved and none of us would be tormented in hell needing water drops on our tongue all good if one goes to them from the dead, surely that would have more impact than the Bible does. Surely, if someone came and rose from the dead, everyone would understand there is life after death and we're accountable to something and someone. Surely that would be the case. They will repent, is what the sinner says. That event would prove an afterlife unequivocally, clearly, without doubt. Everyone would repent if only that happened. And he's talking to the generation that's going to see that happen. And the multitude of people around him, including the Pharisees, I think this is Jesus' last-ditch effort to try to get the Pharisees to convert. Because he's planting a seed right now that even after he rises from the dead, they're going to remember he planted that seed. But he said to them, verse 31, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one that rise from the dead. Is everybody on planet a Christian right now? Nope. Why? Because it's not enough. Selfishness will overcome overwhelming fact and evidence. Selfishness wins every time. So you can provide logical arguments. You can provide apologetics. You can do all this. But if a work isn't happening in the heart, if the Holy Spirit isn't convicting them, they will rationalize away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they do it all the time. People make a living doing it. Jesus basically tells them through story that if they don't get it from the scriptures alone, that him rising from the dead isn't going to do it either. And it doesn't. Yet God left the track record. He left the law. He left the covenant. And everyone's accountable to it. Period. Everyone's had a chance. For those that don't plan, plan for heaven, they will be doing so with their own willful sin or their own willful ignorance. There's no excuse. This is tough. He's going to give a redemptive message too at some point. But not right now. Right now it's like everyone has to be held to account. Just like that unrighteous, unjust steward. Some people don't want to repent. They don't want to be persuaded. They care for nothing for the needy and other people around them. They only care for themselves. They're all too comfortable with their fine linen and sumptuous fare. And that's, they can just be oblivious to what they need to be thinking about. That's exactly what this rich man did. He went through his whole life just oblivious to anything but himself. They're too greedy with what God has given them to spare a few crumbs for Lazarus, who God also made. And the, the, the impact of this message from Jesus Christ would have hit that crowd audibly. You would have heard the reaction to this. And it should hit your heart the same way. Where are you at? Where is your heart? How are you living? Are you living to build the kingdom of God? Or are you living in, in, to build your own kingdom? And, and the difference is you can't serve both. You have to pick. And, and everyone has a choice. Next, Jesus is going to offend everybody. And so get ready for that. Um, but um, 
everyone's going to fall short and, and do this. The point is that you need to apologize, repent, and forgive. That's where he's going with this. Everyone will fall short. Everybody's the unjust steward. And, and the, the repentance is the only thing you have, faith and duty, living for God, not for yourself, and the focus on the heart so that when you're rubbed, it shows gold. What's underneath is just gold. And I think in the church, the, the onset of the Holy Spirit, um, how the Holy Spirit affects the church is that it indwells the body of God's people. And this is the thing that we start to become refined. And that's a word that gets used in the epistles. We start to get refined like fine gold. And the dross starts to get picked out. So what we got today was a very clear image of sin and that the consequence of that is burning in hell. What we're going to get next week is, but there's a solution. And that's the kingdom of God, entering and following after the kingdom of God. And again, all of these teachings are taking him right to the cross where he's going to consummate this in a covenant. And Luke's setting this up, I think like a yeoman, like he's doing the work of laying this all out for us so that we can get this. So I hope that was a blessing. I hope it's convicting. Um, I hope it lands where God means it to. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it's tough to read. Lord, help our minds not to be confused about the passages we read. Uh, and Lord, please uh, help any uh, misstatements I made not to confound people and confuse people, but that we can bring clarity through conversation and discussion. Uh, Lord, help us to not leave here today without understanding what you were trying to teach, uh, that we can become not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And Lord, we want to honor you. That's why we're not trying to earn our salvation. We just want to bless you and say thank you. Thank you for the gifts you give us. Thank you for all the unrighteous mammon that you've trusted us with. Uh, may we be good stewards of it, and may we use it to build the kingdom and, and not build our own empires. So Lord, teach us your ways. Bless the food we're about to eat. Bless the feast we're about to have, because Lord, we do it for you, and we do it in all joy, even though we had a serious teaching today. Uh, we just celebrate you, Lord, and we lift you up in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.